midst of struggle, and that has been the title of the series that we have been walking through since the first part of the year, entitled, The Struggle is Real. Well, if you love politics, this is a uh, rich season of observation for you, no matter which side of the aisle you land on. Uh, for those of you who have been here a while, it's no secret, I do not enjoy uh, politics. You have heard me say often that I think the greatest competition for the gospel in the American church is politics. And many people have allowed politics to uh, overflow into the American dream in their theology. And let me share with you one of the most common ways that the American dream uh, flows over into our personal theology. And the American dream says this, uh, if you work hard, nothing is impossible. That, that the reward is there for anyone who will work hard. And while that may be true if you're a citizen of the United States, that is not totally true when it comes to your faith journey. And so, now if you're here and you know a little bit about the Bible, you're thinking, well, what about the verse in Galatians that says, you will reap whatever you sow. So that kind of sounds like if you work hard, you'll be rewarded. And the Bible says, you know, whatever you sow, you will reap. And so, uh, the reality is this though, the uh, reaping is not always in our timing. And in the American dream, the harvest is always promised as temporal success here on this side of eternity. So, uh, what does that have to do with our message this morning? Uh, when we're talking about this morning, the righteous suffer, that's when we struggle. Now, basically, when the American dream spills over into our theology, it sounds something like this. Do right by God, and He will do right by you. Uh, that's kind of the same thing as saying work hard and be rewarded. Do right by God, and He will do right by you. And so the problem is there's this unspoken expectation that the whole God will do right by you will be on this side of eternity. And in that theology, there is no margin for suffering. And so when suffering comes, it crushes us emotionally and spiritually. And so this fifth message is titled, The Struggle's Real, When the Righteous Suffers. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the classic treatise on suffering, uh, the book of Job in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to look at several places. We're going to start off here, though, in Job chapter 1 and move through some key passages and gleans God's wisdom as it relates to the subject of suffering. Now, uh, if this is here and this is your first Sunday or maybe your second Sunday and you don't know me that well, uh, let me just share with you some things about me. Number one, uh, I like my bacon crispy. Can I get an amen? I like my cars old and I like my theology practical. And so this morning, the reason I say that is because on the subject of pain and suffering, there are all kinds of lofty philosophical and theological works and journal articles and sermons that have been written on uh, solving this mystery about if there's a good God who's all-powerful, then how does suffering exist in the world? And so, but I'm not here this morning to wow you with theological terms or prove that I went to seminary. Uh, my goal this morning is to give you practical hooks so that you can hang truth on, so that you can access it later on. So, I want to answer three simple questions as it relates to the idea of the righteous suffering. Question number one we're going to look at is, what does the Bible teach about suffering? If I'm standing up here and saying, hey, this idea that do right by God and God will do right by you is not a biblical idea, that suffering is a part of the economy of God, uh, then what does the Bible teach as it relates to suffering? Uh, number two, what is God's purpose in suffering? What is God, like, I, I get that it's going to happen, or else we'll, we'll learn that this morning, but, but why does God use that? Why is that a part of God's economy in growing believers? And three, what should we do in the midst of suffering? So it's going to come, God has a purpose in it, so what should I do in the midst of 
suffering because if you're like me, most of the time, if we're honest, when suffering comes our way, what we're praying is not, oh, God, do a work in me. What we're praying is, God, deliver me, right? Not God, you know, God, grow me and mature me. God, get me out of here is mo- our most uh, instinct when we come to the subject of suffering. So when the righteous are blessed, we rejoice. Uh, when the wicked are punished, we are satisfied. But when the wicked prosper or when the righteous suffer, we struggle. And that struggle is real. And so let's pick up Job chapter 1. We're going to read down this morning, down through uh, verse 8. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. So just write this in your notes, he had no money, all right? Uh, Verse 3, and also his possessions, well that's not totally true, uh, were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So this man was the greatest of all the people in the East. So he had money, uh, he had lots of kids, so somebody writing down that he must have been selling drugs or something, right? Verse 4 says, and his sons uh, would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. Uh, So it was when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them and would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Verse 6. And now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And so I'm going to read down through verse 12. This not be on the, may not be on the screen because I just decided that, right? Uh, so verse 9 says, so Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? And verse 10, this is Satan's answer. Uh, so, so basically God in verse 1 through 9 is saying, look at Job, isn't he fantastic? Uh, him and Satan are having this conversation. This is Satan's response, verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and all that he has on every side? In other words, sure he's faithful, you pay him well. That's what he's saying. You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Who wouldn't be faithful if you had done for them what you've done for Job? That's the only reason he's faithful is the argument he's making. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And so, when we come to this uh, first question, simply this, what does the Bible teach about suffering? If we're going to struggle less when the righteous suffer, we've got to understand big picture, what does the Bible actually teach as it relates to suffering? If I'm proclaiming that do right by God and he'll do right by you is not biblical theology, that as a matter of fact, you can do right by God and life will still be hard, what exactly does the Bible teach as it relates to suffering? Let me share a couple things with you in this passage and then from the wisdom of Scripture as a whole as well. Here's the first thing I want you to understand, is that bad things happen to good people because this is not heaven. Bad things happen to good people because this uh, is not heaven. Now listen, if Job were a scoundrel, like if he was a wicked person, and uh, we find out later as you begin reading through the book of Job, chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, basically God allowed everything he enjoyed his life to be removed from him, all his wealth was lost, all his children uh, perished. Uh, we would look at his life if he was a wicked person and say, you know what, you got what's coming to you. 
Uh, the reason you're suffering is because you're a wicked person and you deserve that. But the reality is simply this. That is the furthest thing from the truth. Look at verse 8 again. Let's read that uh, slowly. Let's listen to what God says about Job. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. None like, the whole earth, there's not a person as righteous as him on the earth. If there's ever a person who said, I don't deserve to suffer, I've done right by God, he should do right by me, God himself is saying, there's not a person on the earth like Job. What else does he say in verse 8? There is none like him, a blameless, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Listen, verse 8, if you don't know what to put on your tombstone, what to strive for, verse 8's a pretty good one, right? Like if people looked at your life and, and at some time someone got up and gave a eulogy for you and they just read verse 8 and said, have you considered my servant your name? And they read those things, you would have a life uh, that is well lived. Now, let's just be honest because this is church. Have you ever heard someone wax eloquent at a funeral about the deceased and how great they were and all the time you're sitting there thinking are we talking about the same person you ever been there uh, there's a bumper sticker i saw one time it said this uh, live your life in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to get up and lie at your funeral now i've never lied at a funeral i've been very creative in phrasing on several occasions but i've never lied here's the deal with job uh, this is verse 8. This is not someone saying, hey, this is my opinion of Job. This is not someone going to say, he's my friend, so I will remember some great things about him. Listen, this is God who cannot lie himself speaking on behalf of the character of Job. And he says, there's none like him on the earth. He's blameless. He's upright. He fears God. He shuns evil. And so what do we conclude from all of that when we look at Job's life and we read the rest of the story? We conclude this. Bad things happen to good people. Why? Because we're not home yet. And if God gave you every joy of your heart and removed every hardship from your life, then your heart would not long for heaven. And so bad things happen to good people because uh, this is not heaven. And so uh, based on God's description of Job, uh, if there's anyone who deserved for God to do right by him, it would be Job. And so we look at that and we say, well, that's a, an example, but I'm not totally convinced. Let me just remind you this morning, our entire faith, our entire belief, the, the whole bedrock of Christianity is built on a Savior who suffered unjustly. And if God allowed that to his own son, then why in the world do you and I think that we should be exempt from that type of suffering? But when it comes our way, we're astounded. We, we just, we can't believe here, we've been living faithfully, and yet all this time, this is what we get in return. And so when I look at Job's life, when I look at the life of Jesus, when I remember the fact that everything I believe is built on the foundation of a Savior who suffered unjustly, then guess what? I'm reminded that I'm not home yet. And on this side of eternity, bad things happen to good people. Why? Because this is not heaven. And we live in a fallen world. And we often say things like, I want to be just like Jesus. What we really mean is this, I want to be just like Jesus minus the unjust suffering. I want to be just like him. I don't want to walk through the crucible that he walked through. I want to be just like him, but I don't want to be falsely accused. I want to be just like him. I don't want to be persecuted apart from just cause. I want to be just like him apart from the suffering, but that's not the way God works in his economy. And ever since man sinned and the ground was cursed, we live in a fallen world and so bad things will happen to good people on this side of e heaven now we see it in job's life we see it in the life of our savior 
We're not exempt from it. And so you say, Brad, are you, are you sharing that I, I should expect suffering in my life? Are you saying that I can live faithful and pursue the Lord and live righteously and all those things and, and suffering will still come into my life? I, I would go so far as to say this. It is a promise. Now, it's not one of the promises that we want to claim, right? There are some promises we like to stand up and proclaim them, uh, but the reality is that suffering is a promise that no one is claiming, but it's still true. And so let me share some other wisdom from God's Word as it relates to suffering. Uh, here's, here's another one. Suffering is promised to every single believer. Every single believer is promised to go through suffering. It's not the same suffering. It's not the same intensity of suffering. It's not the same timing. It's not, God has different purposes. There are all kinds of various factors involved. But every single follower of Christ will walk through seasons of suffering. Now, let me just walk through uh, some truths from Scripture with very little commentary because I think uh, they speak for themselves. The Bible promises God's people will suffer. Let me just rattle off some of these verses. Acts Chapter 14, verse 22, Paul told all his young churches, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Jesus said in John 15, 20, if they persecuted me, uh, they will persecute you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter said this, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing has happened to you. I love, that's my favorite of all the ones I want to share. Like, don't be surprised as if this is not normal. And that's when we enter a season of suffering, we're, we're, we're shocked, our sense of justice is offended, and all of a sudden this seems abnormal, and Peter says, no, 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 it's the most normal thing for someone following Christ. Do not be surprised, it's a part of following Christ. As Paul said in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so over and over and over, the Bible again says this, that if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to walk through seasons of suffering. And so, uh, because that's a simple reality, uh, that's not teaching that is popular, but it's, it's faithful to the text. And let me just tell you why that's so important. If you're listening, say amen. If you don't understand that on the front end, when suffering comes your way, the natural conclusion you will have, if you don't understand it's a part of God's economy for growing people to be like Christ, the natural conclusion you will have is this, God's punishing me. If I don't understand that suffering is a part of the way that God grows believers, uh, then the natural conclusion, you'll sit back, you'll be totally surprised, you'll think it's abnormal, and the only conclusion you'll have, and the enemy will reinforce, is that God uh, must be punishing me. And so let me tell you the third thing the Bible teaches as it relates to suffering. This is so, so, so important. Suffering is not a form of punishment. Suffering is not a form of punishment. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, for those of you who grew up attending church, uh, raise your hand if you sat under uh, teaching that either directly or indirectly taught that God punished you for when you did wrong. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's kind of what I grew up on? Yes, some of you tears are just like you, I remember. Like you didn't, right? Like the whole reason of going to church was to get a spiritual whipping. And like you didn't, I had a guy one time in my first church I preached, I didn't think I was preaching that hard. And uh, he walked out, he said, I want to thank you for that. He said, I don't feel like I've been to church unless I get punched in the mouth. I said, buddy, I'll do it again, right? Right here in the foyer. 
But some people, uh, that, that's their whole, like, like, the, like when something bad happens, they've been taught either directly or indirectly from sitting under poor teaching that, that uh, God's punishing you. I remember sitting in church and hearing someone say they were involved in a car crash, and the pastor said, the reason it happened is because you were listening to secular music. And people in the church said, amen. Now, listen, 20 years later, I'm sitting back going, that's jacked up. That's bad theology. And some of you sat under similar teaching. Now, uh, if Christ punishes us for our sins or our bad deeds, let me just ask a theological question to everyone who's ever sat under that teaching and you've never, never wrestled through all of that. And so when your life gets hard, you still wonder, oh, did I, did I do something wrong? Is, is God mad at me? Am I, am I being punished for something? Uh, think about this. If Christ bore all the punishment for sin on the cross, why does God need to continue punishing anyone uh, for sin? But what we're saying is that if God punishes believers over bad deeds, then the punishment that Christ bore on the cross was not enough, and so God is still angry, and God is still pouring out his wrath on all of humanity, and therefore, Christ did not receive the wrath of God on the cross, if that is true. Now, is that true? Let me just read scripture to you. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26, New Living Translation says this, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Now you say, okay, I get that, but what about present? Well, here's how the end of that uh, reads. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do uh, in this present time. Listen, the person next to you has done some stupid things. Would you say amen? They're going to continue to do those things. And the reality is the good news of the cross is this, is that those sins have already been uh, atoned for. The wrath of God has already been satisfied for sins in the past and sins in the present and sins in the future. God is not punishing believers. Why? Because Christ bore my punishment on the cross on my behalf. Listen, an Old Testament verse says the same thing. Isaiah 53 says this, yet our weakness he was carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, he was beaten so that we could be whole, he was whipped so that we could be healed. And so he hear me this morning, uh, write this down, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says this, Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, uh, there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are called to Christ Jesus. There, there is no punishment. There is no condemnation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. And so when you walk through a season of suffering, the most natural temptation is, God is clearly angry at me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further. So God does not remove natural consequences, but he does not punish over sin. He disciplines, but that's in love. It's not punitive. And so uh, here's the second question then. Then what is God's purpose in suffering? If, it, if it's a part of the economy of God, the question becomes, uh, what is God's purpose in suffering? And let's just be honest. Wouldn't God be a lot more marketable and attractive to a lost world if he didn't allow suffering? I mean, couldn't people look at God and go, wow, he's so merciful. He, he never lets anyone struggle. He never lets anyone suffer. I want to follow him. 
There are lots and lots of articles in theological journals and sermons uh, to, to respond to the question of uh, what is God's purpose in suffering. And many different places I read and studied this week said the same things in different ways. Uh, but I found them in one place grouped in such a way that I think it's going to be easier to recall. And since I found them on a Twitter link on the day I was studying in the library, and since that Twitter link was from John Piper, I assumed it meant it was predestined before the foundation of the world that I should share them this morning, all right? A little Calvinistic humor for those of you who get that. So, let me just give you five R's, and this is John Piper, I found this is helpful for me. Uh, five R's uh, that Piper said is God's purpose in suffering. And said if you group it this way, you should be able to remember this. Number one, purpose number one is repentance. Suffering is a call for us and others to turn from treasuring anything on earth above God. Luke chapter 13 says this, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he said, listen, until you become to treasure God above anything else, this will be your fate as well. And so suffering uh, invites us to repentance. The second R is suffering invites us uh, to reliance. Uh, suffering is a call to trust God and not the life-sustaining props of this world. Uh, we have a, a phrase we say in, in churches is that uh, you don't know that Christ is all you need until he's all you have. And so one of the ways we learn that, the hard way, is through suffering. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, We are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us not rely on our own selves, but on God who raises the dead. So what he's saying there is, hey, there are times you think, I cannot go another day with this suffering. And he says, it's in those times you learn to realize, not to rely on yourself, but on God's strength. So repentance, reliance, the third thing uh, is righteousness. Suffering is the discipline of our Father so that we come to share in His righteousness and in His holiness. Hebrews says this, the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises or corrects every son whom He receives. He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. And so one of the times suffering comes, it's when I'm out of fellowship with God, I'm wandering from the Lord, and God says, hey, I love you too much to allow you to wander, I'm going to discipline you in love, training in righteousness, so that you come back into the fold and experience the joy in holiness and following me. He said the fourth, or the fourth R is reward. Uh, suffering is working for us a great reward in heaven. Let me tell you when suffering totally offends your sense of justice. It's when you're looking for all of your reward on this side of eternity. And if that's you, not if suffering comes to your life, but when it comes to your life, you'll look back and say, I'm getting gypped. I I'm getting totally ripped off. Here I've been serving the Lord, trying to be faithful, and the reward is not what I thought it was going to be. My life has gotten harder since following Christ, but what uh, the writer of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 reminds us is that yes, we are suffering for a reward, but it's not on this side of eternity. And let me just share this with you this morning. No one will get to heaven and stand before the Lord and, and receive that reward and go, you know what, uh, this, I, I feel like I've been slighted. That no one's going to stand before the Lord on that day and say, is this it? Here's what 2 Corinthians 4 says. This light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You just say, I'm, 
feel like my life has been suffering and suffering and I'm trying to be faithful, Lord, listen, one day you'll stand before the Lord and you'll, you'll realize it was all worth it. It was all worth it. He said the last R is a reminder. Suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. Philippians chapter 3 says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings. And I don't know all the uniqueness of your situation. I don't know all the variables that went into play while you're walking through a season of suffering. But, but uh, this is a big picture of why God allows suffering in the first place. Like, what's the purpose? And so those five things. So here's the last question I want to answer this morning is this. What, what should we do in the midst of suffering? So I, I'm convinced that it's a part of God's economy. I'm convinced that God has purposes. God, God's just not happy. God's just not sitting in heaven going, hey, watch this, right? That God has purpose in suffering and allow it to come into our lives. And it's for our good and for God's glory. So what should I do then in the midst of suffering? Because let's just be honest, there are times when suffering gets so bad that I'm just not sitting there thinking, well, I wonder how God's going to get glory out of this. I'm just not sitting there thinking, you know, of all these lofty thoughts. So, so what should I do uh, in the midst of suffering? Let me give you three suggestions and then we'll wrap up this morning. Number one, uh, get help in identifying the source of your suffering. Now let me just address this uh, kind of quickly, but I believe it's pretty self-explanatory. But I, but I have to address this uh, because I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this uh, principle ignored and, and just had to counsel people through this. So, so let me just share this with you this morning. Um, when you are walking through a season of suffering, here's what you should do. You should always ask, is this a trial or is it a consequence? Is it a trial or is it a consequence? A trial is something that God allows into my life to refine my faith, to draw me closer to Him, to get back to relying on His strength instead of my strength. A consequence is you've done something dumb, you've sinned, and there are consequences to your actions. I can't tell you uh, how many times people have walked into my office and we've sat across and they're walking through a hard season, they just say, you know, I just, I don't understand, uh, God just keeps allowing trial into my life and trial into my life and trial into my life, and I said, well, walk me through that, like, what does that look like? And I just at the end of that sit back and say, no, 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 God is not allowing a trial in your life, you keep sinning. Over and over and over, and so the, the consequences keep accumulating in your life. I believe it was the great prophet John Wayne who said this, life is hard, but then when you do dumb things, it's even harder, right? That's not totally what he said, but he said the word stupid, and I try never use that in a sermon. So, so you have to ask yourself, I'm walking through a hard season, uh, is this a trial or is this the consequence because I keep sinning? And the reason we need help in identifying the source is because what I've experienced in my own life is I'm incredibly, incredibly efficient at justifying why it's not sin. I'm incredibly gifted at playing situational ethics, saying, well, I know what the Bible says and what the Bible feels about this, but, but in this situation, this was the only course of action I had, so, so God understands that, so God should show mercy uh, in my life. And so the reason we need help is we need someone 
to lean into us. And uh, here's what you're looking for in that person. Number one, you need someone with biblical wisdom. Number two, you need someone who loves you enough to be honest with you. And after receiving wise and loving counsel, you come to the conclusion that if there are no known patterns of unrepentant sin, it's most likely a trial. So then what? So then what? Here's the second thing I want you to see. Is be more concerned with what God is doing in you than to you. When God allows suffering in your life in the form of a trial, be more concerned with what God is doing in you than to you. Instead of demanding all the answers except where you are as the test uh, that God has allowed into your life. Listen, this is the response of Job. Job dug his feet in and never questioned the character of God. And Job said this, uh, even though he slays me, uh, yet I will trust him. Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, uh, not my will, but, but yours. Let me share with you two places in the New Testament that clearly uh, teach this as well. James chapter 1 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work you, that you may be perfect and complete, uh, lacking nothing. What, what does that mean? What he's saying there is, listen, when it, God allows a trial into your life, patiently uh, remain under that trial. Why? Because God is working it for your good and His glory. God is using that to grow you. And if you don't understand that, you'll be so offended with what God's allowing to you, you'll forget that God is doing something in you in the midst of that trial, and bitterness will take root in your heart. Here's another place. Uh, Romans chapter 5 uh, teaches that hope grows through suffering, not in spite of it. Romans 5 says this, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. Now listen to this, verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. You know what tribulations are? Times when life is hard, suffering. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Do, do you see the process there? What he's saying there is that hope does not come in spite of suffering. Hope grows as God sustains us through suffering because here's what happens. The next time I get into a difficult season in life, it doesn't crush me. Why? Because the last time God was faithful and through that suffering, my hope in God grew and I know that God will do it again in His timing. And so be more concerned with what God is doing in you than to you, or else you'll let bitterness uh, take root in your heart. Here's the third thing I want to encourage you this morning in the midst of suffering. Guard your heart against bitterness and doubt. I, 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 cannot, I cannot recall to you the number of people I have known in the last 15 years who were sailing along in their faith, seemed to be have great zeal for the Lord, but life got hard, and they threw in the towel. And bitterness set in, and bitterness left untended grows, and eventually doubt comes. And some people, life wasn't fair, and so they just walked away. We praise Job for his faith, but here's the reality. Uh, Job was a real person. He s struggled with doubt and bitterness and depression. 
and probably a sense of injustice. Uh, listen to some of these passages in Job. Job 7 says this, my eyes will never see happiness again. Job 17.1, my spirit is broken, my days are cut short, my grave awaits me. Job chapter 7 verse 11, therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job 17.11 says, my days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. Uh, Job 27.2 says this, as surely as God lives, who has denied me justice. The Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. And I find that encouraging. The New Testament refers to Job as an example of faith. And the faith of suffering. James 5.11 says this. You've heard of Job's perseverance. And see what the Lord finally brought about after a season of suffering. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Do we struggle with doubts? Yep. Do we struggle with bitterness? We struggle with a sense of that's not fair? Absolutely. The Bible says he also saw the reward of what God did in his heart through all that suffering. Now, here's what I want to say. I'm out of time. Uh, even though we can explain suffering biblically, it's still painful, isn't it? And sometimes those verses in the face of suffering, they're just black ink on white paper. But the good news is you don't have to go through suffering alone. Deuteronomy 31, the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. You see, our God knows a thing or two about suffering because he buried a son. Because of Christ's suffering and his resurrection, our suffering is only limited to this side of eternity if you know Jesus. You see, suffering is not optional. But going through life apart from Christ in the midst of your suffering, it is. And if there's one thing we can all agree on, going through life is too hard alone. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, His hand is reaching out to you. But you have to reach out and grab a hold. And the good news is this, once you do, He will never let go. Would you bow your heads this morning? We're going to do something a little different this morning. We don't always do this. But my experience in 15 years of ministry is this. Is if there's two people in the room this morning, one of them is suffering. And some of you are suffering through a health crisis. Some of you are suffering through relationship issues. Some of you are suffering through financial issues. Some of you are suffering through employment challenges. Some of you are suffering through the pain of family dynamics. And if that describes you this morning, in just a moment, we're going to do something we don't always do. I'm going to invite you to stand up and we're going to sing. And if you're walking through a season of suffering and you're discouraged, even depressed, and we can encourage you in prayer, I'm just going to invite you to come forward this morning when we stand and sing. And I'll be here to pray with you. I've asked some of our deacons to be ready. They'll come and pray with you. Maybe you just want to get by yourself and pray. Maybe you see someone down here who's praying, who's struggling, and you love them. You just want to come alongside. Just put your hand on them and just encourage them. 
and saying, you're not alone. The Lord is with you, and so am I. God, I pray that you would move during this time and that you would use your Holy Spirit to encourage the saints who are struggling this morning. And I pray it in Christ's name. I'm going to invite you to stand this morning, if you will. And we're going to sing an appropriate song in light of what we've taught this morning. And if you're here this morning and you're walking through a season of suffering, and you just want to be encouraged in prayer, I just invite you to come forward as you sing. I'll pray with you. Others will come and pray with you. Whatever it is that God is uh, walking you through, we want to encourage you in prayer this morning. So if that speaks to your heart this morning, as we sing, I, I invite you to come this morning. Let's sing this together. is dealing with your heart. We don't want to rush any anyone or anything that God is doing. So the whole reason we come to church is to experience God's movement and allow people to respond to that. So if God is dealing with your heart this morning, the altar is still open. I'll be at the front. Some of our deacons are here. They would love to pray with you. So let's sing another verse, another chorus. And if God is drawing you this morning, I invite you to respond to him this morning as we sing. I need 
Thank God for moving in people's hearts this morning. God, we are grateful, Lord, that you still minister to those who are hurting. God, that you understand our suffering, not from a far away, but you've experienced it. Lord, as you sent your own son on our behalf. And so, God, I pray for those, God, who are walking through difficult seasons. Lord, I pray that the truths that we would share today would comfort them. The Holy Spirit would comfort them in the days ahead. And that, God, you would send people around them to be encouragers like the body of Christ is supposed to be. So, Lord, we're grateful for your word that even though the struggle is real, God, we have hope because of your word and your wisdom. And so thank you for the work in people's hearts this morning, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to be seated this morning. And as our ushers come this morning to receive offering, uh, let me just share uh, one uh, prayer request uh, really quick. You guys, you can go ahead and and, uh, come forward. And so... Uh, As I shared with you last night, uh, Kyle's grandfather uh, on his father's side had emergency surgery in the middle of the night, and uh, so just be in prayer for Kyle and his family. He's uh, walking through a season of suffering, not knowing what's going to happen to him. It's pretty great. And so just remember him in prayer uh, this week as you would, and maybe encourage him uh, this week as well. So receive the offering today. Fred Tarkington, this is my wife, Rachel. We've been married for five and a half years. Weekend Remember is a conference about pursuing oneness in your relationship, first with God and second with your spouse. It, it's, it's lining out the essentials and trusting, teaching you how to trust God to take care of everything else. We had roots of bitterness. They were just going deep. It wasn't antagonistic, but it was just there. It was just present in our lives and we were seeing an effect on marriage our children, our families, extended families, our church, every, our farm, our business. And then to come here and to just see those roots be pulled up and to feel the bitterness being pulled up and take away. And now we've been given a chance to plant deep roots because we have a purpose and a vision for what our marriage is supposed to be. We have lost the vision of what, our, what marriage is supposed to be in God's eyes. And so now we, we can plant those deep, solid roots have fruit and we're looking forward to going home and enjoying that fruit well if you have never been to weekend remember it's an encouraging weekend tasha i've been a couple times and so it's just a great encouraging weekend so i would encourage you to take advantage of that i know several couples in our church are already signed up and so let me just encourage you to take advantage of that as well well, if you're here and you're a guest, I would love to meet you normally. Uh, I'm out there so I can meet with you, uh, but I'll be down here at the front today because I'm the only pastor that works here. Did you know that? Uh, so, but uh, I'm just grateful for what God is doing um, through His Word and through this series. And so just, if you know people who are struggling in life, this is a great series to invite them to, uh, to say, hey, God's Word has real hope for real life and real problems. And uh, so just to expose them to that. So we'll continue the series uh, next week, all right? Well, enjoy. Uh, let me just share this as well. Uh, can you just st- say this with me one time as loud as you can? Go Falcons. Can you say that on three? Can we just, can we say, 
Can we say that? Hey, have a great time with your family tonight. Enjoy the game. Have a great time with your family. Have a great rest of your weekend. God bless you, Liberty Heights Church. She's wondered And the shame she can't hide She says How did I get here I'm not who I once was And I'm crippled by the fear That I've fallen too far to love But don't you know who you are What has been done for you don't you know who you are? You are more than the choices that you've made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems you created. You've been remade. Well, she tries to believe it. That she's been given new life. Oh, but she can't shake the That it's not true tonight She knows
How sweet the sound. That saved. An alcoholic. Failure. Agnostic. Partier. Liar. Drug addict. A wretch. Like me. I once was broken. Resentful. Helpless. Depressed. Out of control. Abandoned. Selfish. Self-destructive. Angry. Confused. Just but but now i'm sober happy peaceful grateful free alive forgiven i'm found i was blind to god to faith to love pero ahora yo veo I see that I matter. I see past my problems. I see my savior. I see grace. Amazing grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.
welcome you to Liberty Heights this morning and invite you to stand as we sing about this amazing grace, this grace that covers all of our sin and shame. Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Whose love is mighty and so much stronger? The King of glory, the King above all kings. Who shakes the whole earth? Who shakes the whole earth with holy thunder and leaves us breathless in awe and wonder? The King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You would lay down your life That I would be set free Jesus I sing for all that you've done for me.
Well, good morning and welcome to Liberty Heights Church. My name is Brad and I'm the lead pastor here. I never give the welcome. I don't want to be on the stage too much, so I let our other guys do the welcome and the baptisms and the closing. I said, just tell me when it's my turn uh, to preach. But this weekend, um, so I've been here seven years this weekend. And so uh, one of our guys was back in the back, um, Chris, he's preaching for a friend of mine this morning. And he said, hey, congratulations. In seven years, you've come full circle. You're once again the only pastor at church. And so... Uh, so Kyle's grandfather had emergency surgery in the middle of the night. Uh, Chris is filling the pulpit for a friend of mine. And then Sean is uh, there being introduced to the church plant that he is working through uh, there at Grace Point in Springboro. So it is good to be with you here this morning. If you're a guest and this is your first or second time, if you get some time this morning on the side of your worship folder, is a little tarot tab, it's just a communication card. If you would just fill that out, just drop in the offering plate at the end of the service. That's all we're going to ask you to do this morning. And so we just want you to enjoy yourself this morning. Well... During this time in the service, you know, we always uh, try to renew our minds around scripture memory. And so this uh, month, a verse is from Romans chapter 5, verse 8. This is not exactly how I memorized it uh, when I memorized this verse, but it's really close. And all the verses this year are gospel verses. And our hope is this, that as you begin to commit these verses to memory, when God opens up opportunities for you to share Christ, these verses will naturally come to mind because you've committed them to memory and you'll be confident in sharing Christ with other people. So most of the verses this year are gospel-centered verses in that regard. So would you say this with me? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is a great truth, one of my favorite verses. It reminds me of this, that I don't have to clean my life up to come to Christ that God loved me before I could even get cleaned up because He's the one that does the cleaning. It is a great gospel truth this morning to commit to memory in the month of February. Well, also during this time, we always have a prayer focus on one of our missional partners. And this month's prayer focus this week is Jeremy and Katie Bustle. Uh, Jeremy and Katie are members of Liberty Heights Church. They've gone out of our church uh, to serve Christ in Southeast Asia. Now, I didn't know that Jeremy was the prayer focus this week. Kyle's in charge of all of that. And I hadn't talked to Jeremy now in probably about seven or eight weeks. And this morning when I got up, I had an email on my phone in the middle of the night, and it was from Jeremy, just checking in and just giving me an update. So uh, just a privilege to pray for him this morning. Uh, Jeremy and Katie's ministry in Southeast Asia is focused on uh, running a seminary where they're training locals, uh, discipling pastors so that they can go out and pastor the works around Southeast Asia in a biblically faithful way. So it is a vital ministry, but as you can imagine, uh, living halfway across the world with, forget, nine or 13 children, I can't remember how many kids they have, uh, five, actually five kids, but she's homeschooled, there's just a lot of challenges, and uh, so they've been faithful, but it's not apart from challenges, and uh, so let's just pray for them today and ask God to bless them, ask God even this week to give them fruit for their labor and remind them that the God who called them is faithful on the other side of the world. So let's pray together for Jeremy and Katie. God, we're grateful that you're still calling people out to, to serve you all over the world. We're humbled that you would call people out of this, this family. And uh, Lord, we're, we're privileged that we get the chance to support them through our finances, through encouragement, and uh, not least of all, through prayer. And so Lord, this morning, we ask that you would uh, continue to bless them. God, continue to affirm uh, that you have called them there by giving them fruit for their labor. God, in times of discouragement, I pray that you would help us to be sensitive to that so that we might encourage them. Lord, through emails and, and calls and however we can communicate with them, Lord. So God, uh, we're just grateful for this family who are sensitive to the call of God on life. God, use them in ways that they don't even imagine are possible. And help us to be faithful partners in prayer and in giving and in encouragement. And we're grateful for that partnership in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
The word says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before him. Who can come before a holy and righteous God? There's not enough good that we can do to come into his presence. But there's nothing too shameful that we can do to keep us from his presence. Because it's through the blood of our precious Lord and Savior Jesus that gives us the light. He purifies us and washes us clean and allows us to have a relationship with the Father. I want to invite you to stand this morning as we continue to worship and sing about this precious blood.
that is an incredible, encouraging truth, especially when you're walking through the midst of a season of struggling or suffering. And that's what we've been talking about the last several weeks as we've been in a series entitled, The Struggle is Real. Uh, if you love politics, this is a rich season of observation for you, no matter which side of the aisle that you uh, fall on. Now, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that I do not uh, enjoy politics. You've heard me say often that I believe the greatest competitor for the gospel in the American church uh, is politics. Uh, and then also, uh, many people have allowed uh, the American dream and all that surrounds that to spill over into their uh, theology. And so let me explain to you one of the most common ways that that happens. The American dream basically says this, if you work hard, uh, nothing is impossible. Uh, in other words, the idea is simply this, um, if you put in the effort, you get to enjoy the reward. Now, while that may be true of a citizen of this great country, uh, that is not true when it comes to your faith journey. Sometimes you put in the effort and life becomes difficult. Sometimes you put in the effort and there seems to be little reward. Now, if you have a little bit of Bible knowledge, you may be thinking, hold on, doesn't the Bible say that you uh, reap what you sow? That is in uh, the book of Galatians, and the Bible does say that. So how do we reconcile those truths? Well, here's the reality. The problem is this is that the Bible never speaks to the timing of what we would reap. And the reality is, in the American dream, uh, what we say the problem is that, um, what it sounds like in our theology is this. If you do right by God, God will do right by you. And that's how the American dream is, you know, if you work hard, anything is possible. And that's spilled over into our theology where we believe that if you do right by God, God will do right by you. And the problem with that is this. The unspoken expectation is that when God does right by you, it's on this side of eternity. And when it's not, when that doesn't happen, uh, we begin to struggle. And in that theology, there's no margin for suffering. And so when suffering comes, it crushes us emotionally and spiritually. And so the fifth message in this series is uh, this, uh, the struggle is real when the righteous suffer. When you do right by God, but God does not seem to be doing right by you, that is a real struggle for every person in the room this morning. So let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the classic treatise on suffering. Let me invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Job. Uh, we're going to start off in Job chapter 1 this morning. We'll glean some other passages in Job, but we're going to be looking at several passages of Scripture because all the wisdom that God has as it relates to suffering is not contained in one passage, even though this is a fantastic place to start and set the foundation. Now, if you've not been here uh, many times or this is your first time, uh, there's some things you should probably know about me. Number one, I like my bacon crispy. Can I get an amen? Uh, I like my cars old. And I like my theology practical. And the reason I tell you that is because of this. On the problem of suffering in the world, there is no shortage of philosophical, uh, theological works uh, that come at this from all kinds of angles, trying to explain away the problem of pain and suffering. And uh, so, but I like my theology practical. And my job is not to wow you with terms that I learned uh, in seminary. My job is to give you practical hooks that you can hang truth on so that you can easily access that later when you walk through a season of suffering. So in light of that simplicity, I just kind of organized my thoughts uh, this week in studying around three just basic questions on the, when, the, when the righteous suffer. First question we're going to walk through this morning is, what, what does the Bible teach about suffering? Like what exactly is the truth of God's word as it relates to this topic of suffering? Number two, uh, what is God's purpose in suffering? 
And then number three, uh, what should we do in the midst of suffering? And I think those are just real simple questions to organize our thoughts around this morning. Uh, when the wicked are punished, we're satisfied. When the righteous are blessed, we rejoice with them. But when the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, uh, we struggle. And that struggle is a real one for many people in the room this morning. So let's look in Job chapter 1. We're going to read this morning from verse 1 down through verse 12. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. And also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. I still can't reconcile that mystery. He had lots of kids and lots of money. I haven't figured that, that part out yet. But anyway, uh, so this man was the greatest of all the people in the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each one on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. And so it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for Job said it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts thus Job did regularly so he was successful uh, there was no one like him in the east he was a great father verse 6 there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them and the Lord said to Satan from where do you come so Satan answered the Lord and said from going back and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? So in other words, uh, he's basically Satan saying, Hey, I'm going around the earth accusing people, uh, I'm the accuser of the brethren, all this kind of stuff. And so God says, Well, yeah, but you can't do that to Job because Job is just fantastic. And then Satan basically says, Well, the reason he is uh, is because you pay him well. Who would not serve God like that were they not so richly rewarded for their service? So look at verse 10. That's basically his comeback to God. Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased the land. So in other words, well, of course he's faithful. Look at how you've blessed his life. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and his possessions have increased, or I'm sorry, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. If you keep reading, uh, you find out that Job loses all of his uh, material goods. He, he loses all of his wealth. He, all of his children are killed in one fell swoop. And so uh, just Satan begins to uh, wreak havoc in his life. And so in this first principle this passage uh, what does the bible teach about suffering the first thing we see from the life of job modeled is this is that bad things happen to good people because this is not heaven bad things happen to good people because this is not heaven we live on a earth that has been cursed by sin that not just the man's hearts have been cursed and passed down the whole earth the ground itself has been cursed and so until redemption comes until paradise is restored uh, we will walk this life with suffering and trials and torments and all kinds of difficulties because this is not heaven do you realize this that if God made everything smooth, if God just, uh, you had the Midas touch and everything you touched just prospered in your life, then guess what? You know, your heart's affections would be tied up in this world, and apart from suffering, there would be no longing for heaven because you have heaven on earth. You have everything you've ever wanted apart from suffering in life. And so the uh, Bible clearly 
teaches this over and over based on uh, God's description of Job. I mean, there's, if there's ever a person who could say, I don't deserve suffering, uh, I've done right by God, so therefore God should do right by me, it would be Job. Uh, look, look at the case that God makes on his behalf uh, in verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is no one like him on the earth. Right, like, like sometimes we, we would see someone and we say, hey, what do you know? And they would say, hey, listen, he's a good dude. Like you would like him, you'd enjoy him, uh, he's, a, you know, he's a good guy. Right, like, like God looked at Job's life and said, hey, listen, on the whole face of the planet, there's no one like him. And then he goes on and keeps, that's not enough. He's blameless, he's upright, he's one who fears God, uh, he shuns evil. Uh, listen, those are great. Like, if someone ever got up and was going to eulogize you at your funeral and they just said, hey, let me describe this person and they read verse 8, that is a life well lived. How many of you have ever heard someone wax eloquent at a funeral about the deceased and how great they are and you're sitting there thinking the whole time, are we talking about the same person? Right? <laughs> Clearly you didn't know them. Uh, there's a bumper sticker I saw one time that said, live your life in such a way that the preacher doesn't have to get up and lie at your funeral. Now, I've never lied at a funeral in 15 years, but I have been very creative in phrasing at times. Listen, this is a guy in Job's life, no one had to get creative. God himself, who cannot lie, looked at Job's life. It wasn't his friends going around saying he was a good dude, you'd, you'd like it. It wasn't his mama standing up saying he's just the best boy around. It's God himself, who cannot lie, who looks at his life and says, hey, there's no one like him. He's blameless. He's upright. He shuns evil. He fears God. Look at Job. And yet all this suffering comes into his life. All this tragedy, all this turmoil, and if there's, again, anyone who would just say there's an injustice going on, we would look at Job's life and say, clearly, that's not fair on this side of heaven. But let me jog your memory. Can I, can I just remind you, that as it relates to the subject of suffering, that listen, the whole foundation of our faith, everything, the cornerstone of our faith, is built on the theological reality of a Savior who suffered on our behalf unjustly. Uh, one who was not guilty, uh, but yet was tried as if he were a convict. One who had no sin in him, and yet they crucified him like a criminal. And so if God allowed that to happen to his own son, then why do we think we should be exempt from suffering on this side of the heaven? And we often say things like, well, I, I want to be like Christ. What we really mean is this, I want to be like Christ minus the suffering that, that, that he went through. And ever since man sinned and the ground was cursed, uh, we live in a fallen world and bad things will happen to good people. And we see it in the life of Job, we see it in the life of Jesus, uh, and the reality is this, we're shocked though when it comes to our life, is it not? Let me, let me just share with you how unshocked you should be when suffering comes into your life. Uh, you should mark this down, suffering is a promise from God. Now, uh, in the world of name it and claim it, there are lots of promises to claim and live out, right? Like that's not one, no one's claiming that one. Like, I've watched guys on TV, they're claiming riches, they're claiming favor, they're claiming anointing, they're claiming, you know, fill in the blank with five easy payments, you can claim it too, Do right, just fill, like, no one's getting up saying, hey, Lord, I claim suffering. And if you just buy this prayer cloth, you too could suffer for the glory of, no one's claiming that, but mark it down, suffering is a promise from God for those who follow Christ. 
Suffering is promised for every believer. So I want you to understand the Bible teaches that we live on a fallen world. Bad things will happen to good people because this is not heaven. If nothing bad happened, it would dull our affections for heaven. Secondly, suffering is promised to every single believer. Let me just list for you uh, some of the truths from Scripture with, with little commentary because the power of God's Word is so clear on this promise. Let me just rattle off some of these verses. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul is writing, talking to all these young churches. They're young in the faith, and, and here's what Paul speaks into their life as their father in the ministry. Here's what he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. Now, not, not, not in spite of them, not, not go around them, not there's a few of them. He said, through many tribulations, uh, we must enter the kingdom. Jesus said this in John 15, uh, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. First uh, Peter chapter 4, uh, Peter said this, and this is my favorite one. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal uh, among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, is that not the exact opposite when suffering comes their way? Like, what is this? And, and, and I didn't sign up, and Lord, I've done right by you. And you're not doing right by me, and all this suffering's come. I'm totally uh, shocked and offended the suffering. And Peter said, no, 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 uh, why in the world are you surprised? Why, why are you behaving as if something strange is going on when you suffer? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 uh, said this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus uh, will suffer persecution. So the reality is simply this, the more uh, steadfast that we hold to the truth of God's word, the more diligent we try to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, guess what? Suffering will only increase until the return of Christ. And so we suffer because we live in a fallen world. Uh, we suffer because we seek to advance the cause of Christ and the world hates his message. And that's not teaching that sells tickets, but it's true, and it's important. Let me tell you why. If you don't understand that suffering is promised for everyone that follows Christ, the natural conclusion you will come to and the enemy will reinforce when you go through a season of suffering is this. If you're listening, say amen. God's punishing me. I mean, clearly, look, 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 at, look at how hard my life is. Look, look at all the things, you know, health and, and money challenges and, and my kids. and you know, look, look, Clearly, and, and I examine, so, so I, I've done something wrong. Matter of fact, if you read on in the book of Job, Job has three, uh, I use this term loosely, friends. And they come into his life and Job, they're just looking, like, man, his life's in shambles. This dude's life is totally jacked up. And here's their question in a roundabout paraphrase way, what'd you do? Clearly God is wearing you out because of something you did. Uh, what did you do? And the interesting thing is this, uh, my experience this, is that in seasons of suffering, we don't need to call friends and go, hey, would you come over and discourage me? Right? You got any friends like that? That's their spiritual gift is discouragement. I used to have one guy in my church. This is terrible, but it's true. Uh, in my first church, I had a nickname for him. It's just Eeyore. You know, just so I saw him coming, and I knew my day was going too well, I'd just call him to bring it right back down to earth, right? We don't need, you know, we don't need people like that in suffering. You know why? Because we're the ones going, hey, clearly I've done something wrong. That if you don't have a theology of suffering as a part of the Christian life, that when suffering comes your way, the natural conclusion you will have is, uh, I did something wrong. I deserve what's going on. So let me tell you this last truth. It's not last, but the one we'll cover this morning about what the Bible teaches about suffering from a big picture point of view, is suffering is not a form uh, of punishment. 
Suffering is not a form of uh, punishment. Now, just out of curiosity, uh, how many of you grew up attending church, uh, and just raise your hand, if either you were directly or indirectly taught that um, when bad things happen in your life, it's because uh, God was angry at you, God was punishing you for sin. How many of you just grew up under that? Yeah, lots of you. Lots of you. Right? Like, I, that was uh, my wife, that was what she grew up in. I didn't grow up going to church, and I tell her all the time, I think I start off with a better slate than you did, because it was all jacked up, you got to wade through all that stuff. You know what the Bible, listen, here's the, let me just remind you of this truth. God does not punish believers. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation or punishment or uh, God barring his wrath out. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God does not punish uh, believers. So that's just one verse. Now let me read you another one. Romans chapter 3, uh, 25 and 26, New Living Translation uh, reads this. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus was sacrificed, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those in times past. All right, that's, that's the past though. That's those prior to the cross. So, so what about post the cross? Listen to this, verse 26. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. Now let me just, newsflash, you're sitting next to a person who's capable of doing some really dumb things. Did you know that? And the good news is, no pointing, I don't know, some of you are pointing, I don't know what that means. But the good news is this, that for every act of unrighteousness you've done in the past, the cross, uh, listen, Christ bore all the punishment. If you grew up in a church that taught, hey, when bad things happen in your life, God's punishing you, think about this. If God still need to punish sin, what that means is that Christ did not bear the punishment for our sins on the cross. If the cross was sufficient, then why in the world does God need to continue to punish sin? The answer is, He does not. Christ bore our wrath. Christ uh, vicariously died on our behalf. He is a substitutionary atonement for those. And God's wrath has been satisfied on the work of the cross. Past, present, and future. I remember listening to a guy one time early in my Christian life uh, when I started going to church and uh, someone had, <laughs> this is a true story, someone had gotten in a car wreck and the pastor proclaimed it's because you were listening from the pulpit, you were listening to secular music in your car, God, God just whacked your car. You know what, listen, 15 years later I'm sitting going, that was, that's jacked up, that's not even true. That's not even, that's, not, that's bad theology. Uh, listen to an Old Testament verse, Isaiah 53 uh, verses 4 and 5, New Living Translation says, It was our weakness he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped uh, so that we could be healed. Listen, some of you need to write this down and hang on to this verse uh, because it, is, it would just totally transform your walk with Christ. God does not punish believers for sin. Why? Because Christ bore our punishment on the cross. God's wrath has been appeased in the work of Christ. And don't let anyone ever teach you anything different that the hardships in your life, if you love Christ and you're following Christ, that the hardships are God punishing you. So, well, doesn't the book of Hebrews say that God disciplines every son whom he receives? Yes, that is not the same as punishment. That is training in righteousness, motivated by love, not punitive anger or wrath from a God whose wrath has already been satisfied. Hey, listen this morning. Thank God for the work of the cross. Amen? That I can be free in Christ and say, listen, when hard times come, it's not because God's punishing me, it's because Christ bore my punishment 
on the cross. So that's the first thing, just some things about what the Bible teaches about suffering. Uh, secondly, so, so what is God's purpose in suffering? Like I, I, I'm convinced now that it's a part of the plan of God. I shouldn't be surprised. I shouldn't act as if some strange thing were happening like Peter writes about. But, but what's the purpose? And let's just be honest. Uh, wouldn't God be more marketable if there wasn't suffering? I mean, wouldn't more people be attracted to a God who didn't allow suffering? Wouldn't that sell uh, more tickets? And there's lots of uh, debate and articles and theological journals and sermons uh, on this subject and, and why God allows suffering. But um, so when I just looked at place after place after place and studying this week, uh, there were kind of similar things being repeated in different places. But I found uh, one thing, and so I was on the day I was studying, I found a Twitter link uh, that was called Why God Allows Suffering. Uh, literally on the day I'm studying the subject, and that Twitter link was from John Piper. And so I just assumed that it was predestined before the foundation of the world to share those in my message, all right? A little Calvinistic humor for those of you who can appreciate that. Uh, in all seriousness, he, he grouped them and organized them in a way that was easy for me to remember. He, this wasn't unique to him. Lots of places repeat the same principles, but he organized it in a way that, that helped me remember. And, and Piper said this. He said, God's purpose in suffering can be uh, defined in, in five R's. Five R's as it relates to suffering. And I thought it was easy to remember in this format. Now he said, uh, R number one is repentance. Uh, suffering is a call for us and others to turn from treasuring anything on earth above God. Luke chapter 13, it says, uh, Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. In other words, hey, listen, their suffering should be an example. They treasured something more than Christ. And that will be your fate if you treasure anything else above Christ. So repentance. Uh, secondly is reliance. Suffering is a call to trust God and not the life-sustaining props of this world. How many of you have learned the lesson? You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you learned the lesson uh, that, that, that you don't, you're relying on something else other than Christ? You learned that through suffering. And it wasn't until you went through a season of suffering that you finally realized that, that Christ was all you need because that's all you had. And that's a gift from God, even though it's unpleasant, that it's a gift from God for God to do that work in your own soul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on a God who raises the dead. You see, some of you know the resurrection power of Christ because God has raised you nearly from the dead in a season of suffering. And so repentance, reliance, uh, third R is righteousness. And that's the discipline of God that God allows in our lives to bring us back into fellowship uh, with him. Hebrews chapter 12 said the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. But again, it's motivated by love. The idea there in the original language is training in righteousness, not punitive. I'm mad at you. I'm going to squash you because I can. Here's what it says uh, in Hebrews. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. There's an idea, training in righteousness. So even God's motive in discipline is love. It's training, not punitive. Uh, the fourth R is reward. Uh, suffering is working for us, a great reward in heaven. And it'll make every uh, loss here seem minuscule. Second Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, I, I don't totally know what that reward is, is what it is. 
Like, right, like I'm looking, is that, um, is that a Twix bar, right? Like, I don't, like, what exactly is that? I don't totally know, but here's what I know. No one who walks through a season of suffering and gives evidence of their faith by persevering will stand before the Lord one day and receive that reward and stand back and go, is that it? Like, I feel totally ripped off here. Here I was faithful, and I suffered, and, and that's all I get. No, listen, we will all stand before the Lord, probably bowing down and saying, Lord, I don't deserve this type of reward. I just suffered for a momentary affliction, and here's how you've rewarded me, with eternal riches. I'm not worthy. And so we suffer, why? Because of eternal reward is promise. And then the fifth R is reminder. Reminder that God sent his son to the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation but his purification. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Can we just be honest? No one's praying that prayer. No one's going, hey, uh, God, I just want to know Christ. And, uh, and the way that I do that, I want to share in his sufferings. As a matter of fact, if we're honest, we say, is I want to know Christ uh, apart from sharing in his sufferings. It doesn't work that way. And so we don't, I don't know every detail of your circumstance. I don't know every variable that went into play there in the act of suffering. But here's the God's big picture on why God allows suffering. And it's a helpful way for me to remember that. So, so here's the third question I want to walk through on suffering this morning. Is this, uh, what, what should I do in the midst of suffering? So, so it's going to come, that's a promise, whether I want to claim it or not, it's going to come into my life in all kinds of forms. And I know the big picture of why God used it, reward and righteousness and repentance and re reliance and remembrance and, and all those, those things. Uh, but, but what do I do in the midst of it? Because let's just be honest, most of the time when I'm in a season of suffering, I'm not saying, Lord, thank you for purifying me. Like what I'm praying is, Lord, uh, deliver me. Uh, Lord, uh, I, I'm not, not, not Lord, teach me. Lord, Lord, help me. Lord, get me out of here as quick as possible. I don't, and if I'm honest, sometimes when bitterness sets in, if suffering is too long, I'm like, Lord, uh, I don't deserve this. So what do I do in the midst of suffering? Well, let me give you three things this morning. Uh, number one, get help in identifying the source of your suffering. Now, uh, this is fairly self-explanatory, uh, but I have to address it because I, I, I cannot tell you how many times I've sat across from people in the last 15 years, and they've uh, said, hey, listen, uh, I'm here because I'm walking through a season of suffering, and I believe that God just keeps allowing trials into my life, and I don't know why God's, I don't know what God's trying to teach me. Can you help me? And so I just asked them, well, listen, just walk me through that. Like, what, what do you mean God's allowing trials? And they begin to unfold a series of sinful decision after sinful decision after sinful decision, and, um, and that it's all of a sudden, but God's allowing trials, and the reality is, it's not a trial, it's a consequence. Every season of suffering is not a trial. Sometimes it's a consequence. You know, someone says, I don't know why this relationship's just not working out. And over and over I keep getting hurt. And sometimes I've had to sit across and go, well, here's why. Because they're married to someone else. That's why. I saw on Facebook not too long ago, which is the source of truth. You all know that. Someone wrote this. I thought it was fantastic. They said, ladies, be sure God will never send you someone else's husband. Amen. That's not good. And sometimes you have to ask the question, is it a trial uh, or is it a consequence? A trial is something God allows into my life to grow me in my faith, to cause reliance on Him, to draw me into a closer fellowship with Him and to rely on Him instead of myself. 
a consequence is a result of sin, and consequences will continue to accumulate until you come to the point of repentance. Even after the point of repentance, the consequence of sin can go on past the sinful act. Listen, if you shoot someone and kill them, and you ask for forgiveness because you're generally uh, repentant, guess what? You're still going to jail for a long time. And so get help in identifying the source of suffering. And is it a trial or is it a consequence? Why do I say get some help? Because my experience is this. I am very gifted at justifying my sin. I'm very gifted at situational ethics. Well, I, I know what the Bible says, but, but, but given the circumstance, I, I did this, and God knows my heart, and the problem is this, I don't know my heart. God knows my heart fully, and I'm deceived by it, Jeremiah 17, 9. And so I need someone who, A, has biblical wisdom, and B, who loves me enough to be honest. Do you have someone like that in your life? Who loves you enough to be honest? Who says, hey, listen, I see the path you're walking through. I think it's because you keep making unwise or sinful decisions. This is not a trial in your life. So what I do in the midst of suffering, get some help in identifying the source of it. And uh, if there's no known patterns of unrepentant sin, then most likely it's a trial. So, so then what? Well, here's the second thing. Uh, be more concerned with what God is doing in you uh, than to you. Be more concerned with what God is doing in you uh, than to you. And sometimes we demand answers. Uh, instead of demanding answers, just accept that God's allowing something to grow you, that, that you may not even understand it. On this side, of, can I just tell you this? There are seasons of suffering in your life that will not make sense on this side of eternity. Job said this, if you can read the book of Job, Job said this, he said, though he slay me, I will praise him. One of the passages in the New Testament teaches this, and why, why is this so important? Because when I'm concerned with what God is doing in me, uh, I, I draw close to Him. When I'm concerned with what God is doing to me, I'm bitter at Him. James chapter 1 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, suffering, the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work on you, that you may be perfect and complete, uh, lacking nothing. What does that mean? It means that suffering in God's economy is one of the tools that God uses to produce maturity in our lives. You want to have a life free from suffering? You'll be a spiritual baby your whole life. You want to grow in the Lord? Guess what? Suffering will come. It'll produce that. Suffering is a pathway for sanctification. Let me say that again. Suffering is a pathway for sanctification. Let's repeat that together. Suffering is a pathway for sanctification. One more time with Pentecostal power. Suffering is a pathway for sanctification. Uh, listen to this verse in, in Romans 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, thank God for my salvation is what he's saying. Now, listen to what he says here in verse 3. And not, I want you to advance the slide. That's why I'm pausing. There you go. Only that, but we also glory in tribulations. I'll give you another word for tribulations. Suffering. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. So, so what that verse says is this, is that 
suffering produces hope, um, not the other way around. You say, well, like how in the world does that work? Because as God stands with me in my time of suffering, and I see him faithful on the other side of it, the next time suffering comes my way, my hope is not diminished. My hope has grown. Why? Because despite the suffering of the present circumstance, I've watched God be faithful in the past over and over and over, and it's grown my hope. So suffering leads to hope, not the other way around. Here's a second thing I want you to be. The third thing is this. Guard your heart diligently against bitterness and doubt. In a season of suffering, guard your heart diligently against bitterness and doubt. Let me just tell you this, this true stories. Um, I, I've watched people, I've known people who have been in seminary, who have walked through a season of suffering and walked away from their faith because they could not reconcile God who loves them, but also allowed deep, deep, prolonged suffering. I've watched people have the joy of the Lord in their life. God allowed some suffering, and all of a sudden all that joy is diminished, and a root of bitterness sprung up that Hebrews talks about and grew into a full-blown sequoia. We praise Job for his faith, but listen, Job's a normal person just like us. He, did he battle with doubt and bitterness and depression? Yes. Uh, listen to these verses from the book of Job. Job 7, 7. My eyes will never see happiness again. Some of you probably said that. It'll never get better. Job 17, 1. My spirit is broken, my days are cut short, the grave awaits me. I'm going to die. Job 7.11, therefore I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job 17.11, my days have passed, my plans are shattered. And so are the desires of my heart. Anyone ever been there? Everything I've worked for is gone. My plans are shattered is what Job said. Job 27, 2, as surely as God lives, who has, listen to this, who has denied me justice, who has made me taste bitterness of soul. You know what the Bible says in James chapter 5, verse 11, that Job is an example of faith in the, in the face of suffering. You know what that means? Listen, if Job is the example, and we just read all those verses about what's going on in Job's heart, uh, you've got to fight in your own heart in a season of suffering and guard your heart against bitterness and doubt. Because Job did, and he's the example, according to James chapter 5, verse 11. And we reason that God is not fair because he doesn't provide us answers. Uh, but let me just ask you this. Parents, do your kids ever get mad at you when you don't give them an answer for your actions? You know what they call people like that who say, oh, my kids never do that? They call them childless. Did you know that? And it's always for their good, is it not? Listen, if you've got kids over the age of five, you've heard one of them say, either out loud or with their actions, you're trying to ruin my life. I'm at the age now with four and a couple of them teenagers, I just say, you're right, and it's fun, right? I just like, it just spills out sometimes. And we are like those children looking at a God who allows suffering in our life and saying, what are you doing? God the whole time is just saying, I know it's pleasant right now, you don't understand it because you're not a parent like I am in a spiritual sense. This is for your own good. No different with our kids. No different. Well, even though we can explain it this morning and give some principles biblically um, about why suffering happens and how God used it, what we should do in the meantime, let's just be honest. Uh, it's still hard. It, it's still incredibly difficult. And, and sometimes uh, it, it just feels as if life is not going to, it's hard to get one foot in front of the other. 
For the Bible says this, you don't have to suffer alone. Deuteronomy 3, 31 says, The Lord himself goes before you and be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid uh, nor be discouraged. You see, here's what I've learned in studying the scriptures. Is God knows a thing or two about suffering because God uh, buried a son. God himself knows about suffering because he buried a son. And suffering is not optional, but suffering alone is. And the good news is this, is that if you're here today and you don't have Christ to walk with you, his hand is stretched out to you this morning, but you have to reach out and grab a hold of it. But the good news is this, that once you do, he will never let go. Would you bow your heads this morning? This morning, we're going to do something that we don't always do. In just a moment, I'm going to invite our musicians are going to come and they're going to play and they're going to sing a hymn that is so appropriate for what we have talked about this morning. And I'm going to invite you to stand up in just a moment and we're going to sing. And I'm just going to open up the altar. Here's why. Um, if there are two people in the room, one of them is probably suffering. And if that's you this morning, um, I, I don't want you, I, I want you to be encouraged in the Lord today. I, I want to pray for you right now while the Lord is stirring your heart. And, and there are times, listen, you can make decisions for your seed. You, you hear me say that every week. But, but there are times when I'm suffering, I need to know that I'm not standing alone. And that someone is standing with me in prayer. And so in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing. Some of our deacons will be down here. I'll be down here. If you're here this morning and you're suffering, it may be a situation with your kids. It may be your health. It may be finances. We had all kinds of people come forward in the first service. I'm going to, I'm going to invite you to come forward. Why? Just so you know, you're not standing alone. We're standing with you in prayer in the face of suffering. Father, I pray that during this time of response, God, you would have freedom to work in people's hearts, that they would trust you, and that we might encourage them in prayer during this time. We pray in Christ's name. I'm going to invite you to stand up this morning. And as you stand, we're going to sing a very, very familiar hymn for many of you. And as soon as we start singing, if you're here and you're suffering, and I'll be at the front, some of our deacons will be here, you just said, you know what, uh, I would love for us to know that someone is standing with me in prayer. Uh, just come forward as soon as we start singing, and we'd love to stand with you in prayer this morning if you're walking through a season of suffering. So as we sing, I invite you to come. Let's sing this together. I need
verse again together. I need thee every hour.
reason we come to church is to have God move. Not to get information, but to have God move. And so I'm going to invite them to sing one more verse and one more chorus. And if you're here today and you're thinking, I'm just holding on, no one cares, no one, my problem's so small compared to other people, I'm just going to invite you to come. Let us just stand with you in the Lord in prayer. Let's just encourage you in prayer this morning. I'm not going to draw it out, but if, but if you're standing there thinking, I just want this thing to end so I can get out of here, God's going to just, listen, just surrender yourself to what the Lord wants to do in your life today. All right, so one more verse, one more chorus. If you're hurting and we can stand with you in prayer, you come this morning as we sing. is not to get more information about God. We come to get more of God. And in our times of suffering, there's never, uh, that's more reality than when we're walking through a difficult season. And so, again, the Lord is with you. He's not left you. He's not punishing you. And others would love to stand with you in prayer uh, this morning. And so we're grateful for the work that God does in people's hearts. Uh, and we don't want to squash what God's doing in people's hearts. And so I'm just going to invite you to be seated as God continues to deal with hearts at the altar. If you need to leave, that's totally fine, uh, but my theory is this, as long as God is moving on people's hearts, uh, we, we should stay here as long as He's moving, and uh, so we're just going to allow God to continue to work in hearts, we're not going to rush anyone, but some, some may have to go, so just going to continue to play, and we're going to continue to pray with people as God moves in their hearts this morning, so uh, you just pray along with us as the Lord begins to encourage people uh, through prayer this morning.
Lord, we come to you today and we don't, we don't even always know how to pray for people who are hurting. We don't even know sometimes the words to use in the midst of our own suffering. But Lord, we know that um, in spite of our inadequacies, that that doesn't diminish your faithfulness. And so God, we're incredibly encouraged that in those seasons we don't walk alone, that the Lord himself walks with us. And God, we don't walk alone because there are always other believers standing with us in prayer. They're ready to encourage us. And so God, I'm grateful today for a church that is sensitive to people's needs. I'm grateful for a church today that relies on Christ work in the hearts of his people when the word of God is preached. And so Lord, just uh, let us, let our suffering be for your glory. Uh, Let let us uh, not walk out of suffering without a testimony of how faithful God is to those who are watching. And so Lord, let us never come to the place where we doubt your love for us. And so Lord, we're grateful that we can suffer for your glory. And I pray that in the midst of it, you would find us faithful. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, whose grace sustains us because we can. Well, if you're here this morning, uh, I'm just grateful that, you know, there are, I always say this, there are times that we come to church uh, and we do all that we're supposed to do, uh, but then there are other times where, where God comes to church and God shows up and moves in the hearts of His people. And so we're grateful to God for the work uh, that He does and the, the, how God makes His Word come alive in people's hearts. And so we just could not be more grateful uh, for the Lord and His Word that sustains us in seasons of suffering, all right? Well, others will continue to pray. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. There was uh, ushers, some folks had to leave early, so chase them down outside. Make sure they gave their offering, if you would. Would you do that? Um, but uh, as they come, there's just a little uh, uh, reminder about a weekend to remember. It's just a great opportunity to encourage uh, you in your marriage. And so take advantage of that here that it's local. So uh, watch this as we play. I'm Fred Tarkington. This is my wife, Rachel. We've been married for five and a half years. Weekend to Remember is a conference about pursuing oneness in your relationship, first with God and second with your spouse. It, it's, it's lining out the essentials and trusting, teaching you how to trust God to take care of everything else. We had roots of bitterness. They were just going deep. It wasn't antagonistic, but it was just there. It was just present in our lives and we were seeing it affect our marriage our children, our families, extended families, our church, every, our farm, our business. And then to come here and to just see those roots be pulled up and to feel the bitterness being pulled up and pulled away. And now we've been given a chance to plant deep roots because we have a purpose and a vision for what our marriage is supposed to be. We have lost the vision of what, our, what marriage is supposed to be in God's eyes. And so now we, we can plant those deep, solid roots and have fruit and we're looking forward to going home and enjoying that fruit again if you've never been to weekend remember it's just a very encouraging weekend in your marriage i would encourage you to go it's gonna be local here in cincinnati other folks from our church have already signed up and so we just encourage you that's coming up on the 24th through the 26th well i've talked enough today we've taken up the offering uh, we've been here quite a little bit longer than normal and so um, let me just share with you two more words of wisdom as you leave today all right write this down Go Falcons. Amen. Go Falcons. Hey, have a great weekend, uh, Liberty Heights Church. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday.